Hawkeye Self Storage in Danville has electricity hookups, 14-foot-tall doors, and 60-foot drive lanes, private bays, interior and exterior lighting with 24-7 access gated entry. They also feature indoor RV and boat storage with multiple locations in Danville and one in Pittsburgh. More information can be found by calling their phone number at 317-745-2700 or by going to their website, hawkeyestorageunits.com. This is Sights and Sounds with Alan Kiger. Alan is a Hendricks County native that talks with your favorite entertainers. This is where Alan hangs out with music royalty. Sights and Sounds is sponsored by Hawkeye Storage in Danville. And now your host, Alan Kiger. This is Sights and Sounds. I'm your host, Alan Kiger, and my guest today is Michael Ramos, keyboardist for the Jim Ursay Band. Now, you do a lot of other stuff other than just play keyboard. Michael, tell us how your day's going. Um, well, as we speak, I'm sitting here learning some of the new music for the Jim Ursay show coming up in Indianapolis. And, um, you know, I, I do wear a lot of different hats. I'm a producer. I do uh, scoring for film and for podcasts. And uh, I produce artists, you know, um, projects, music for artists around Austin and other places, and uh, I'm also managing director of a record label called Lucky Hound here in Austin, so, you know, I just do whatever I can do and still keep my hand in music after all these years. Michael, you just keyed in on something. It's a question I had later on, but I'm going to go ahead and ask it now. How does one, how do you become a producer? I understand how you become a musician, but how does one how do they come to you or do you go to them and say, Hey, I've got it. I want to produce your record. How does that work? Well, most of the time they come to me, you know, and being a producer, you know, it's kind of a natural progression, you know, but I, I had known all along, you know, way back to my teenage years that well, recording is my passion. And, um, you know, I sit on my bed at night with my headphones on, just staring at the back of album covers and reading the credits and, you know, listening to all the different parts that all the musicians did. And, you know, I knew that I wanted to be in the studio, you know, as much as I possibly could. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but it's a lot of times the producer ends up being the person in the band who, you know, does the charts for everybody or, you know, starts to take over the arrangements or, you know, leading a song into a certain direction or, you know, and by default, a lot of times it's the piano player because, you know, the piano player, you know, can read and write music and, you know, and guitar players as well. It's just anybody that has the, uh, more of an eye towards the sound and the arrangements and stuff by default ends up kind of being a producer. Okay. That's, that's a great answer. I appreciate that. Michael, would you tell the listeners how you got started in music? Um, well, you know, I was always a huge, huge fan of music because my family were, they were all music lovers, my parents especially. And when I was just a little kid, uh, maybe three or four years old, you know, when my parents would go out on the weekends, my dad, and I don't know why he did it, but I'm so grateful. He would, when we'd go out, they would take me with them and my dad would let me listen to about 10 or 15 minutes of the band and then he'd drive me back home to the babysitter and I just have to tell you the first time that I ever felt 
that bass vibration in my chest sitting in front of the stage I don't know I didn't know what it was but it really hit me and I was hooked you know my parents God bless them probably didn't realize that they were setting themselves <laughs> for a, a lifetime of heartbreak watching me struggle all those years but that's kind of what did it you know and my mom was always she'd point out like look how everybody respects the musicians you know everybody's talking to the musicians on their break you know and I see now it's just like the musicians trying to pick up girls, but back then I didn't know that. But, um, but yeah, that's kind of how it started for me. You know, I in my mind I always had uh, an idea of what music was, or at least what it appeared to be to me. And um, one day my parents, I think I was going to be in fourth grade, and you know, so I was nine years old, and my parents said, "Hey, would you like to take piano lessons?" Just assuming I was going to say no. And I was like, really? Of course. And they both looked at each other kind of surprised. They said, okay. Um, and the cool thing about taking piano lessons uh, then, it was I was taught by a nun, and I went, I went to Catholic school. And the cool thing was um, that I got to get out of my math class every Tuesday Ooh. at 9 a.m., which was good and bad because that's one of the reasons I became a musician is because I'm bad at math, and maybe that was – that shouldn't have been the class that I missed, but um, but I had a piano teacher, you know. So the first, uh, the last day of summer, I was out in the front yard with all my buddies. We were in, my, in the next door neighbor's yard, and we were playing football, throwing it back and forth. And um, all of a sudden, this beat up, you know, rusty old pickup truck uh, came driving by with a tarp, and it was covering something and we could kind of see when it went past it was an old beat up piano and somebody goes oh my gosh look there's a piano in that truck so we all go running down the street behind it and when it pulled into my driveway I was like just you know dumbstruck I'm like what the hell and then I remember that you know a few months before my parents asked me if I wanted to take piano lessons and they moved this dusty smelly old thing into our living room and you know the the first time I sat down at it, I started plinking notes, and I just immediately saw the correlation of the notes with each other. And I was like, oh, you know, hey, this is a lot easier than I thought, you know? And so for some reason, I already had the concept of music in my head even before I sat down at the piano. So I don't know how that happened. I don't question it. I'm grateful for it most of the time, you know? That's, that's kind of how it happened. And I started taking lessons, you know, went through the bands, you know, in high school, you know, marching band, you know, symphonic, orchestral, you know, playing the trumpet and uh, got a scholarship and, you know, was going to, you know, to, to learn jazz. And I realized early on for two reasons that I was not going to be a jazz player. You know, it was going to be... Even though I thought at the time playing rock music was a little too simplistic, jazz took a hell of a lot more work. And, you know, I could fake my way through it. But then whenever the jazz musicians started telling me how much money they made or, in this case, didn't make, I was like, okay, um, I need to focus my sights someplace else, you know. <laughs> and that's kind of that's how it happened. I played in and around Houston a lot, which is – I grew up right outside of Houston and – then I just decided I was really tired of playing cover music, and I wanted to uh, play original music, you know, play with rock bands, original stuff, so I moved to Austin, 
uh, the best of both worlds. You know, it wasn't like LA or New York where I was going to be away from my family for months at a time. I could just drive home, you know, in three hours if I needed to. And yet I could be surrounded by a bunch of like-minded and kindred spirits playing music. I was broke as hell and I was never happier in my life. You know, I didn't, I didn't realize how poor I was as part of it. You know, you were happy. Yes, I was. Uh, I, I've been in Haiti a few times on mission trips and those people down there are desperately poor, but they're happy. So yes. if you don't know what you don't have and you're exactly. living in the moment, you're happy. Absolutely. That's exactly what it was. And I'd look around and say, man, I'm really broke. But then I'd look at all my buddies and they were just as broke as I was or possibly more, you know? So it was like, I, it was just this feeling of we're all in this together, you know? Well, Michael, who were your musical influences growing up? Oh man. You know, when people ask me that, it's really hard. You know, obviously the first time I watched, uh, or the first time I saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 1964, was a mind-blowing, earth-shattering experience for me. Um, and my dad, like, like I said, my dad was really just clever, and he was always buying records and stuff. Seeing the Beatles, that was uh, a very pivotal moment for me. Um, uh, my dad also bought us like Rolling Stones records, and uh, I was just really into mainly the Beatles. I liked the Stones, but I was more of a Beatles guy, and. Uh, and then growing up, you know, I still, you know, would kind of listen to some jazz stuff, uh, but I was into groups, kind of like ELO was a huge influence on me, Todd Rundgren's Something Anything album, um, where he played most of the instruments on there, always fascinated me. Um, and, you know, and then as I moved, you know, got older, you know, like I moved to Austin, and at that point the whole new wave slash punk scene was happening, so I was really into you know, groups like The Clash, XTC, uh, I really love Tears for Fears, you know, and all those electronic bands. I'm a keyboard player, you know, so, of course, um, all the keyboard-influenced music that was coming out was, I mean, I just felt like I was in the right place at the right time, you know. I, I still love that music. I'm, I'm an 80s child, so graduated in 85, so all those, all those people you just mentioned, you know, those were big, big musical influences on my life back in the day. Right. You know, and Prince, I can't leave out Prince. Ooh, yeah. You know, he was, he was a huge, I mean, I was a Prince fan from his first two records on, and most people didn't know who he was, you know, it wasn't until, you know, early eighties when he really started stepping out. But by the time he started getting really famous, I'd already been a fan of his for three or four years, you know? Now, Michael, you've worked with a lot of talented musicians. Uh, we talked before we started this interview. You worked with Mellencamp. I, I also right. read that you worked with Chris Christopherson, uh, yes. the Bodines. Is there any yes. stories, any influences you you picked up? You know, with working with Chris Christopherson or Mellencamp. You know, what what all did you do with them? What did they teach you? You know, uh, it, it's, it's really interesting because. Uh, I'll start with Christopherson first because that was just uh, that one came from out of nowhere. I got a call from someone um, asking me if I could come in and play because I guess they'd already started the session, but there weren't there wasn't a keyboard player, so they asked me to come in. And it was crazy because he was in Texas. I can't remember what he was here for. Either 
he was getting inducted into something, or Willie Nelson was getting inducted into something, but he was in town, uh, I think it was for an Austin City Limits show, and um, ironically, he, you know, he's from Texas originally, but he is uh, really good friends with my father-in-law, and my father-in-law had just been hanging out with him that previous weekend. So um, we got there. At that time, they thought he was suffering from, you know, um, not dementia, but like Alzheimer's because he was getting really forgetful. He couldn't focus. And the good news is, as shortly after that session, they realized that it wasn't that. He had, um, I think it was like a virus that he had or something. And, and when they realized that's what it was, they were able to clear it all up. So he was just completely normal. After that, That's great. Um, you know, I don't want to be misquoted, but it was something along those lines. But it was really cool working with him because, you know, um, I'd known folks that had worked with him before, and I know what a what an influential songwriter, you know, he is. And you know, I got to sit and talk to him for a bit, and you know, he really is a brilliant guy. I mean, a lot of people don't realize he's a Rhodes Scholar. Absolutely, yeah. You know, uh, just a lot of he's just one of those Renaissance men. You know. Um, and with Mellencamp, you know, um, I like to say I was a three-peat offender because I went back and played with John three different times. And, um, you know, I I really enjoyed my time with John. You know, I, uh, I learned a lot from him, actually working with him in the studio. Um, some of the things I learned, you know, I, I still use every day when I'm in here producing and working on stuff. And... Uh, I really enjoy him. I'm still very good friends with everyone in the band. And, um, actually, Mike Wanchik is the band leader for the Earthsake Project. And, um, you know, I'm sure the deck was stacked, but that's how I got the gig with the Earthsake Project, I'm sure. Well, that's going to lead into my, my next question right here. How did you become a member of the Jim Earthsake Band? Um, I think, well, you know, um, Mike had posted or his wife, Laura, had posted this event that they had done in Nashville. And um, and it was just, you know, Mike, and I think Mike Mills and Kenny Wayne Shepard, uh, just, I don't know if Tom Bukovac was doing it yet, but they were still sitting around on stools just kind of doing like a really quick, impromptu, um, like a little guitar circle kind of thing. And, you know, I said, hey, that looks really cool, you know. Uh, if you ever come, and just joking, I said, if you ever come to Austin, let me know. And uh, Mike called me back. He goes, well, we're actually coming to Austin, and we're going to need some help, you know, getting a venue together, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then he called me back, you know, and he said, hey, do you want to play with us in Austin? I'm like, Sure. And then he said, and we're also playing in D.C. next month. Do you want to do that? I'm like, are you kidding? You know, <laughs> yes. So that's that's how it came about. That's that's very cool. Now, I I went and saw the, the Jim Irsay Band last year when they were at Lucas Oil Stadium. The Jim Irsay Band, the Jim Irsay Collection is coming back to Lucas Oil Stadium September 8th. Um, with you talking about you started in Texas, how long ago was that? And when you... When you assimilate and you're in this band, I mean, I'm trying to explain to the listeners if they haven't been, it's a who's who of the band. I mean, everybody in the band is extremely talented and played with everybody, but then you guys have right. these special guests that drop in. 
for Indy, right. you've got Mellencamp and uh, Ann Wilson from Hart and Peter Wolf. You know, he had a had a great career. Stephen Stills. How do you? Yes. I mean, how long does it take to rehearse? A the band part and B when all these people come in here and they decide what songs they want to play. How do you guys rehearse for that so that it comes out sounding fantastic? Well, I will tell you that this gig is the most fun gig I've ever done. It, it, it encompasses the three things in my life aside from my family that mean the most to me. Uh, music, history, and football. Not necessarily in that order. And this gig has all three. So I love it. You know, um, it, it it is a, for me, it's a stressful gig up until the minute that we're done. Because, you know, I don't want to be the guy that messes it all up. I mean, you've got like superstars in the band already. And then you bring in superstars to come in and play. And, you know, you just don't want to be the guy that screws it all up, you know? And I remember one day, uh, I was in, I was in the van on the way to the rehearsals and, you know, I was really stressed out, especially at the beginning. We had a lot of new material to cover because we had to learn the band's material and then whatever, um, guest artists they had coming in. So, you know, on any given show, you know, we had 20, 23 songs, to learn and it's a lot you know because everybody's got other lives this isn't like our only gig and uh, I remember being in the shuttle van on the way to rehearsal and I think I think it was Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and he said man I'm really stressed out oh, and wow. I just remember thinking but you're Kenny Wayne Shepherd. what have you got <laughs> to be stressed out about you know and I realized and somebody else got in the van and they said the same thing and I realized Okay, it's not just me, you know. Um, everybody's really, you know, it's, it's an important gig. And number one, we don't want to let Jim down. And, you know, Jim has high expectations, as he should, you know. Um, and so that that part of it, you know, like, for instance, I've been working on these songs already. The show is, what, in two weeks? And I've already been, or a week and a half, I've already been working on these songs for weeks, trying to make sure that I have my stuff down, you know? Um, and I think everyone is in that boat. So by the time we come to rehearsals, we're actually rehearsing arrangements as opposed to learning songs. Now, every once in a while, they'll throw us a curve at the last minute, you know? Like the last time we played um, Lucas Oil Stadium, we did a version of Stairway to Heaven with Ann Wilson. And, you know, we were all getting interviewed for a documentary that they're putting together. And when I did my segment, I remember walking off, you know, the set and somebody said, oh, hey, you better go talk to the powers that be. Uh, they just added a song and the intro is, is all you. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, you know, I, I've heard Stairway to Heaven a million times, but I never listened to it thinking I had to learn that little, you know, the little flute part at the beginning. And, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of pressure to, you know, to do your best. Well, I'll tell you, I saw it last year. I, w I was asked to go to San Francisco, but I couldn't go. It, it's one of the most impressive concerts, listeners, that you can get out to. To see this many superstars up on one stage, playing at the top of their game, and, and it's free. I mean, that's... 
for for the general person that can't afford to go to concerts, I mean, concerts are expensive. Jim Irsay, yes. I, I know Jim Irsay is a wealthy man, but this is a nice gift that he gives the city and other cities. I mean, well, these shows cost him an arm and a leg. I, I will tell you, can't imagine. It's, you know, one of the things I love about Jim, you know, he says he puts himself at the service of others, which is how I, I like to think that I, I live my life. You know, so that resonates with me. And when we played in San Francisco, uh, one of the local reporters, you know, stood up at the press conference and said, you know, tickets to uh, a San Francisco 49ers game go for upwards of $1,200 a piece. And yet you're doing this show. You could easily charge people $35 and it would still be packed. How do you do that? And, you know, and Jim said, you know what? You know, I'm quoting him. He said, I, I say this humbly. I don't need the money. What I'd like to see are some of these um, mega superstars who are multi, multi-millionaires many times over. I'd love to see them occasionally put on a free concert for the people that help them become millionaires. Wow. And I just thought, you know what? Damn straight. That, that's it right there. You know, he's just he's just trying to give back. And not only is he trying to give back, he does give back. So, um, you know, I love the guy. And uh, it's just such a wonderful thing to be part of, you know? Well, for the um, from a fan perspective, it's just phenomenal. I, I watched one of the interviews, and I heard Buddy Guy get up there and say – the world would be a better place if there was more Jim Irsays. And that was, that's the truth. That was very, very powerful statement that he made. So I'm trying, just trying to let the listeners know they need to get out here. They need to see this. The collection is built up of probably some of the coolest guitars and modern day pop and cultural historical things that you can see. And it's free well, to look I mean, at. Most people hide that stuff in their basement if they well, have it. Exactly. I mean, I've never been to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but if their collection is anything like this, I mean, it's unbelievable. Ringo's drum set, the uh, you know uh, Jimi Hendrix guitar, Prince's guitars. They have guitar- he's got like guitars from all the Beatles, Bob Dylan lyrics. You know the original handwritten lyrics to Hey Jude. I mean. And then there, there are the historical artifacts, like letters from George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. There's actually a, a cane uh, that was uh, carved out of a log that Abraham Lincoln had cut down in his youth. I mean, that kind of stuff. And then when it comes to the sports memorabilia, it's just off the charts. I mean, um, I think it's is it Jackie Robinson's cleats or maybe it's Babe Ruth's cleats. And then a, a bat. A, a bat, yeah. And you know Muhammad Ali's robe and and shoes and title belt from the Thriller in Manila. You know it, it, it's mind-boggling that you can sit there two feet away from it, staring at it. And so the collection. You know, you asked me how long ago the Austin show was. That was it's coming up on two years now, like in November, I think it was. And back then in Austin, that we played DC the following month, the event was a lot smaller. Like now, it's like thousands of people that come. 
but back then it was sort of in its infancy these shows were very intimate like 300 people 250 300 people there and i mean they didn't have stuff behind glass or uh, you know they just kind of had like a little rope there i mean it was so out in the open i couldn't believe it but then as the shows started to grow then the security and the presentation started to become a lot more sophisticated. But it's still great. You can sit there and look at all these different aspects of American life and music all in one place. It's just mind-boggling to me. I, I was completely – I didn't know what to expect last year. I go to a lot of concerts. I interview a lot of artists. So it's something I enjoy. And you know, I enjoy most every show that I've ever went to because you love music. But when you see something right. like that and you see somebody and part of I, I didn't even know it till we got there, everybody that walked in. I don't know if they're doing that this year, listeners. So I oh, but last year, everybody that walked in got ten dollars. You know, you could go buy beer or food or pop, whatever you wanted to. You got a coupon. I mean, I've never been to a concert where they give you a coupon to go buy food and it's free. No. And no. you're going to see no. the best musicians in the world. And then this year they've got um Oh, the, the magician. I'm sorry, my, my mind just went blank. Um, Mellencamp, Peter Wolf from Jay Giles Band, Ann Wilson. I was going to say. Of course, I mean. Go ahead, it, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I mean, Kenny Arnoff, who, in my opinion, he's a dear friend. He's like, aside from Ringo Starr, the, the most famous living drummer on the planet. Um, you know, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, Tom Bukovac, who a lot of people don't know. He's got his own. Uh, podcast is called Homeschooling, and uh, he's got hundreds of thousands of followers. And you know, he's won you know best guitar player at the CMA Awards many times over. I've heard people joke to say they should just they should just stop having that, just give him the trophy <laughs> every year, you know. And then Mike Wanchik, the band leader, who's the uh, band leader with Melon Camp, and uh, Mike Mills, of course, from REM, and you know, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and the cool thing is, you know, we've all gotten to be, you know, friends and, you know, folks I might never have met, you know, and it's, for me, I just look at this, at this gig as just the greatest gift, uh, and I have so much fun doing it, you know, I thought I'd already done all the cool things in my career, but this was definitely, uh, you know, I don't know what the word is, uh, Hopefully it's not the pinnacle. Hopefully I can do some well, it's, cool it's stuff. A, it's a gift that's been given to you. That's just yeah, exactly, and I and I I try to take care of that and respect it, and so I always come with my you know game face on and just you know do everything I can to, to make Jim proud and you know to do all my buddies in the band right. I'll tell you, I've had an inter a chance to interview a few others that are in the band. I got to interview Kenny Wayne Shepherd last year before ND. Uh, I got to interview Carmela Ramsey before, uh, I, don't, I don't know if it was the San Francisco show or the Vegas show, um, and started following her on Facebook. You know, what a, what a talented musician and singer she is also. Um, again, this is all in, all in one band. So, listeners, you know, I'm trying to pump up this concert here. Um, September 8th. You've got the Jim Irsay Band, the Jim Irsay Collection. Chris Angel's going to be there trying to break some kind of Houdini record, which is a complete... A com well, that was I was looking for that name a minute ago. It was on my next page of notes. So, you know, that's that's cool. That's a that's a new mix to that. You've got Peter Wolf 
Ann Wilson, Stephen Stills, and we're in Indiana, so he's he's got John Mellencamp. Uh, that's right. That I mean, everybody likes Mellencamp. You know, I remember. Right. Well, you know, I will say for any folks out there listening that were there last year and they saw the size of that crowd, I think they had was it forty two thousand requests for tickets, and um, it is double this year. So. Uh, you know, that's not to say that, you know, 82,000 people, 84,000 people are going to show up because not everybody that requests a ticket shows up. But if you can kind of gauge just by default, you would imagine that the show is going to be twice as crowded as it was last year. You know, it was it was off the hook, listeners. So, Michael, I had a couple more questions, but I've kept you long enough. I try to keep the interviews in a sweet spot where people just want to listen to it and not tune me off kind of like a preacher so with that being said one more time september 8th jim ursay collection jim ursay band lucas oil stadium Uh, i don't know if tickets are still available out there but they're free if they are it's a fantastic show you've heard it from right here from michael i want to say thanks for being our guest today i really appreciate you taking your time especially to work around my schedule i really appreciate that Oh, trust me, this is perfect for me. I look forward to seeing everybody out there, and I promise you we will not let you down. The show does not disappoint, and I've already seen the list of songs that we're going to be doing, and um, if I wasn't in the band, I would go. I'm not in the band, and I'm going. (laughs) Well, Alan, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Sights and Sounds with Alan Kiger. Sponsored by Hawkeye Storage in Danville. And don't forget, if you miss a broadcast, you can hear the podcast at sightsandsoundspromotions.com, where Alan hangs out with music royalty. Hawkeye Self Storage in Danville has electricity hookups, 14-foot tall doors, and 60-foot drive lanes, private bays, interior and exterior lighting with 24-7 access gated entry. They also feature indoor RV and boat storage with multiple locations in Danville and one in Pittsburgh. More information can be found by calling their phone number at 317-745-2700 or by going to their website, hawkeyestorageunits.com.